it is an enormous pleasure to talk to you about The Merry Widow because, of course, pleasure is what this operetta is all about. But that's not the only feeling that this operetta has provoked. So before I welcome our guests on to give you some context for what you're likely to see this evening, I just wanted to give you a little sense of the other emotions that this opera has invoked in the past when it first opened. Because, of course, while it had a Viennese debut, uh, in uh, 1905, the opera spread like wildfire around the, room, around the world from then on. And what I'd like to talk to you about is a rather violent interaction that took place in New York around this opera in 1908 over a hat. And this was, of course, the Merry Widow hat, which was designed for Lily Elsie, who was the first English Hannah in London by Lucille in 1907. And Lucille is in fact one of the first famous fashion designers. She invents the fashion show and she also invents the Merry Widow hat for the stage. And this hat became a fashion sensation. There were lots of rip-offs and copies across the world to the point where one was reported to be up to three feet wide. So in 1908, as a sort of canny marketing endeavour, Henry Savage, the producer of the New Amsterdam Theatre in, in Broadway, advertises the fact that at a matinee of the opera, there would be a thousand free Merry Widow hats available. 1,300 women show up. And of course, Savage knows that to give the hats out straight away means that he'd have an empty auditorium because the women would collect their hats and leave. So he refused to give them out before the show. He insisted that the women went to their seats and watched the opera. At the first interval, after the first act, some women go to the box office asking for their hats. One woman said she wanted to try it on to make sure that it suited her because she didn't want to bring it home otherwise. And they were sent away with some angry muttering. In the second interval, after the second act, uh, the box office sort of caves and starts to give out the hat. And a scrum emerges in which women tussle each other to the ground, hats are trampled, the table containing the hats is overturned. Um, the New York Times describes the moment. In an instant, the confusion was at its height. One woman jammed tight against the one table that still stood in place, tackled the woman next to her with a vim that would have done credit to the world's champion female wrestler. Now, I think this moment tells us much about the popularity of this opera, and it also might tell us something about the reasons for its popularity. Because, of course, while the opera opens in 1905 in Vienna, having met with some resistance in its original production, its success is astonishing. And we see within the next two years productions that go from Brussels to Belgrade to Buenos Aires, alongside not only a fashion craze for hats, but indeed a whole series of Merry Widow-themed merchandise, Merry Widow cocktails, Merry Widow salads, Merry Widow corsets. And in that, I think, we see a kind of mass culture in which the desire to buy merchandise, to go along with a kind of repeated visit to this amazing cultural event, is, is a, has a huge resonance, I think, for us now. It's easy to imagine that that sort of behavior is rather more modern. But in fact, what we're seeing it as is an expression of an Edwardian culture of consumption in which people mingle window shopping with going to the theater. 
So while we will shortly be hearing about the opera in its original context in Vienna, I think it might be interesting to ask ourselves why this opera caught the imagination across the world in this moment. And I would suggest to you that one of the reasons is lodged right here in this very building. Because of course the Colosseum was built a year before this opera debuted. And in this building, I think we can see all the evidence of what Edwardian audiences were looking for in their nights out. And it's easy to imagine in a building as beautiful as this, uh, direct, uh, designed of course by Frank Matcham in 1904, that this was a kind of building for the elite. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Colosseum opened as a theatre of varieties and it was aimed at musical audiences, mass audiences, who had emerged and grown over the course of the 19th century. Because of course the 19th century is a story of cities swelling, people moving from other parts of the, the world and also other parts of the country to come and work in factories and industrial spaces in cities. And of course those people might have a tiny bit of money left over that they'd like to spend on their night out. And so theatres grow rapidly. They grow in size and in number. And the West End, of course, is rezoned as a leisure district in which people can come and take pleasure in things, buy things, look at things and go to the theatre. So this building is famous at the time for one being the first theatre with a working lift in it. Think of the luxury. And of course, a triple revolve stage. And when we move into this beautiful auditorium, which we can see on that lovely photo here, helpfully for me, we can see that even before a performance opens, the Edwardian audience is feasting its eyes. It's surrounded by opulence, by beautiful decor. And that goes along with the appetite for theatre that we again see emerging in the 19th century. Theatre that is highly spectacular, where factory workers who've worked with machinery all day go and see that machinery put to use to produce a series of extraordinary special effects on the stage. We also see a desire for beautiful sounds, for the sounds of rural life. Remember, we have people who've left the land to come to cities. And of course, what we get is crazes through the 19th century for folk dance, for polkas, for waltzes, for English country dancing. So we see a display of rural life, often on the stage, mixed with machinery, not only in the stage effects, but also, of course, in forms of dance, like the can-can that makes dancers look like machines and suggests that humans can outdo the machines that they work with. So when we come to The Merry Widow, we see an opera that is designed for us to feast our eyes. It's a three-act opera. It concerns Hannah, the very wealthy widow of the title, whose money is enormously important to the exiled Pontevedrans who are deeply concerned for the economy of their fictional country, which is bankrupt. And of course, some of the concerns around nationalism and a bust economy, I might not need to spell out the current resonances of those connections. Um, but each scene, each act of this three-act opera is based around a party. So we get to see the beautiful clothes. We get to hear beautiful music. We get to witness luxury. 
Again, it's easy to imagine that that's somehow elitist, but in fact, it's highly aspirational. We get the shop girls, the bank clerks, the milliners, the tailors, who've actually produced mass-produced clothing, going to see this opera and longing for the sorts of luxury and life that they get to see on the stage. And this may be the reason that the Merry Widow Opera spread so fast across the world and also enabled lots of merchandise be sold. So we have audiences who might go and stare in the windows of Selfridges and they go and then go and stare through the windows at this beautiful opulent world. Now, it's easy to imagine that because of this, somehow these audiences are somehow less sophisticated or that the opera's pure froth and again, I think I want to invite us to ask whether that is necessarily true. Audiences, of course, are capable of intense sophistication in the kinds of culture that they consume. And we might be interested in the fact that this is an opera about a widow who has a lot of money. Now, there might be something rather interesting at stake in a woman of independent means who, whisper it, has already had sex and is not under male control. We also have an opera that's deeply concerned with the relationship between the economy of your country and empire. And these questions all seem intensely relevant for what's happening in the world at the moment. So with that in mind, I'd like to invite on our first guest, and we're very lucky to have him. It's Max Webster, who's the director of this production, and this is a chance for us to ask him about those resonances. Please welcome Max Webster. Thank you. Um, Max, of course, you're an associate director at the Old Vic, and your work has taken place at the West End, at the Globe, and also, of course, in Buenos Aires, which seems entirely relevant, given that this opera also opened in Buenos Aires soon after its Viennese debut. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. I wonder, could we begin by, by just telling us when you begin on working on a production like this? Where do you start? So when does the thinking begin, and what, what do you first think about when you're working on something like The Merry Widow? Well, I suppose, hi, everyone. It's very nice to be here. Um, I suppose it started three years ago in a conversation with Daniel Kramer, the artistic director of the English National Opera. And we were talking about the building's roots in Music Hall and how when this place was first built, it was made for light entertainment, vaudeville, comedy. It had a big, wide, broad demographic. It was very open. Lots of tickets were very cheap. Uh, and produced things of great quality, but it wasn't exclusive and it wasn't uh, a closed shop. And that Daniel's great wish as the artistic director was to try and recreate some of that spirit in the building and to think about what repertory might be able to showcase world-class singing and really demand opera singers of talent and charisma, but that could also have a broad popular appeal and have a group of people who've never been seen opera before and they could go in and watch a show like that and have a good night out, just as you would do if you saw a show down the road in the West End. So we started off thinking about light repertory that might still be relevant and meaningful, and it felt like The Merry Widow was an incredibly popular and loved piece, but actually one whose social relevance hadn't necessarily been hugely uh, activated in recent productions. There's a lot of very beautiful recent productions had been a kind of nostalgia fest, and they had wonderful costumes and some wonderful singing and some wonderful dancing, but that the original uh, punch of the show and the original gesture that made it subversive and saucy and dangerous and not just kind of riotous for women wanting hats, but also people sort of slightly scandalised by it or slightly shocked by it when it opened, that that original subversion could be reclaimed and made to feel very modern. 
Um, and it took me a while to work out why it was so popular originally, because you sit there listening to the music and you think, well, these are incredible tunes and very lush orchestration, but that doesn't necessarily explain why it's a cultural hit uh, in the way that I guess... I suppose, in a way, it's like thinking about Hamilton now, isn't it? Why, how a performance goes from being a good show or a commercial hit into being something that becomes a kind of cultural milestone that defile, defines an era in performance mm. in the way that, say, Hamilton has done in the last five years in New York and now in London as well. Uh, why was the Merry Widow the Hamilton of the turn, <laughs> of the turn of the last century? And I think the answer lies in what you were starting to talk about, about what it means to give a young woman's story, a woman who is not very rich, a woman who's not very posh, who comes from a working background. In the original, she's a farmer. Uh, and she's then suddenly thrown into high society, into the patriarchy, uh, like a cat among the pigeons, and gives the old codgers a run for their money. And that's incredibly exciting and empowering and also subversive. Mm. Uh, I think it's worth thinking about what normally happens to leading ladies in operas. You know, the stories are not great. Uh, <laughs> I, was say, I was saying to someone the other day, you know, it's amazing to have a working class widow woman at the centre of an operatic stage. Mm. And they said, what about Violetta in Traviata? And yes, she's a working class woman, but she also ends up dead and abused. Mm. And that's the end of the story. And so <laughs> Hannah, Hannah ends up... Uh, being able to choose the ending of her story. She, not manipulates, but she manoeuvres her ex mm. through a series of games and in dances, in a way, mm. into falling back in love with her. And she ends up with the man she wants and the money, uh, which is a position, of, a position of great power. And in a way, I think it's that that makes it a sort of symbol for the dawning 20th century, when some of the old hierarchies of the 19th century of class and gender are starting to be questioned by the winds of change blowing across Europe. So, um, when you then began to work with Sarah Tynan on the role, how did you talk to her about it? What, what sort of choices did you need to make in your, your, the beginning of that work? Well, it becomes, as soon as you start actually working on it, it becomes very practical. And you have a kind of conceptual chat like this for five minutes. And then you get down to, I think an E would sound better on this note to make the vowel <laughs> right. And I think there's a little bit too much dialogue here because people will get bored because yeah. you need music every so often. So mm. uh, it, becomes, it becomes immensely practical very fast, mm. I suppose. There was a, wish, a joint wish to make Hannah someone who was confident and loud and brash, but as well as being uh, extrovert and confident, could also have a heart and be real and have feelings that had a three-dimensional emotional life to it, mm -hmm. rather than just a kind of symbol of something punky. So that how, could you could ha how could you have the, the comedy and the subversive energy, but also portraying someone who's got three-dimensional emotions? Mm. Um. So the resonances around some of the questions of gender equality are obviously very powerful with the opera. And the other set of contemporary resonances are something around national debt and questions of sovereignty, which also seem very potent at the moment. How much were those questions playing out for you in, in how you thought about staging the piece? I think if I'm honest, the this production is more interested in the gender questions than it is in thinking about uh, empire and the, the end of empire at the period when this mm. opera, or the, the closing phase of empire of the period of opera. There are some Brexit jokes, but it seemed to me that the, the emotional energy of the music is not really in uh, singing about the country or in singing about uh, 
the end of Empire and those things closing down. That is part of the plot, but in a way it's the subplot and it's a, it's a comedy plot rather than the plot that Leha gives great, great emotional music to. The, the big uh, kick in the music is in, the, is in love, is in the romance, and therefore, of course, in the gender relations. And so I think it's felt like that the subversive and interestingly subversive energy is in the romance and thinking about how you could do think about gender relations now. Mm. Um, and of course, I mentioned that your career has combined opera and the theatre. And I just wonder how it, what the difference is for you in your process between working with actors and working with singers. So do you have to function differently as a director? Is it pretty much the same sort of work? A lot of the things are the same because you're telling stories with words and music. And in a way, words and music are more are closer than lots of people think. There is a musicality to uh, text. If you're doing Shakespeare, it's, you direct musically. And there is also a psychology to well-written opera because the music is also the thoughts and the emotions. So they should, they should go over each other. Um, Singing is, of course, a huge physiological and technical challenge in the way that speaking Chekhov isn't. It requires a muscular level of technique and engagement that is all-consuming and extraordinary. And so, uh, the other that takes up a lot of a singer, a lot of a singer's uh, work and imagination and technique mm -hmm. is obviously going to be focused on producing this extraordinary sound. Uh, so the staging has to work slightly differently sometimes, but not that much. And I think it's probably harder to make changes and harder to improvise whilst singing opera because so much energy goes into the voice and so the staging needs to be probably fixed a little bit earlier and a little bit more rehearsed than it might be in theatre, which could perhaps be a little bit more improvisatory because there isn't this kind of extraordinary physical process at the heart of it. But the basic thing that you're trying to do, which is tell a story in a way that is clear and complicated and emotionally engaging, remains the same. And of course, the operetta form rather than opera does, does push a director even harder by combining spoken dialogue with singing and also dance numbers in this case. Yes. Uh, so was that a, a challenge too in that you're working with singers who are actually being pushed very hard to also act through dialogue and dance? Yeah, but they were great. Or well, I hope you see at the show, they're very good at it. <laughs> so you work on you work in the way that you would do with the theatre on intention and what they're thinking and how the scenes work. So it is always hard. The shift between uh, spoken dialogue and sung music is always difficult. And the way a modern musical would function would underscore a lot more of that text. So if you go to see Waitress down the road or being Evan Hansen or Book of Mormon or whatever, it's much more through composed than an operetta would be. And of course, we can't do that because the music in an operetta is the music, at least as things currently work. We don't rewrite massively and we don't create extra underscore to join it all up. So the way we, or the way we, the amount of music we're used to hearing under dialogue in a contemporary commercial musical theatre or on film or television isn't reflected in the form of the operetta. So there are challenges to the dialogue because they feel perhaps less supported than you would do it if you were doing it in a musical or in, on a film. But it's still fun and it's still funny uh, and exciting to try and make the old form work now. It's a good challenge. And just as a final question, of course, one of the ways we might know a director's work for us as an audience member is through decisions around setting. So 
there is there was of course the possibility of setting this opera in, in contemporary dress in in the modern day and you've chosen to situate it in the Edwardian and I wonder what the what the reasoning was there when you began was that an was that an immediately obvious choice or did you have to think that one through well, there was, a, there was an afternoon when I thought it would be quite funny to see it. It was in, all in Brussels, and there they were in suits talking about small countries falling out of European unions. <laughs> and I thought that would be very unfunny, and everyone would come out very depressed, and that isn't the aim of the opera, an operetta. Yeah. Uh, it felt also quite on the nose, I think. And I suppose, ultimately, the reason it's set in a loose version of the real period is I think the sound of the music, which is Leha's music, is so much of that era that when you listen to the or orchestra, it kind of sounds like a Klimt painting looks. It's got a lushness and a nostalgia and a glitter and a shine and a kind of swoosh of harps and folk instruments and soaring strings and things in a way that doesn't feel very contemporary and doesn't feel very clinical. And so I suppose there's an attempt to match image to sound that uh, a, modern, a modern dress might struggle with. I think there's also a, the, the, the plot is also very much of a period. Half the plot revolves on someone writing on a fan, and the fan kind of goes wandering around the embassy and becomes a sort of symbol of, like, uh, promiscuous love. Uh, and I don't think you can really have a story about a fan wandering <laughs> around the embassy. You'd have to start doing kind of awful things with text messages, and I don't know, you'd have, to, you'd, have to do a, you'd have to do a very hard and very major intervention into the basic story to make it work in the modern world. So it felt like there was something about the charm and the simplicity and the, the lightness of the original story that was worth preserving. Max, can I say thank you so much? This has been so insightful, so huge thanks to you. Um, and I'd like to invite our next guest on, who is Judith Beniston. And Judith is the Associate Professor uh, at the School of European Languages, Culture and Society at UCL. Um, please join us, Judith. Thank you. Um, Judith, thank you so much for joining us because, of course, what's wonderful about having you here is that we can now understand the original context of Lehar's work in Vienna. Mm. Um, but I wonder if I could ask you a rather more general question first, which is, why are widows so terribly troubling? Uh, because we go right back to Chaucer, of course, we see quite a lot of cultural anxiety about the figure of the widow. I wonder if you could talk that out. What does the, what, why might the merry widow cause us some concern? A widow, I think, un, in any patriarchal society, a widow is the one sort of, um, well, the one being a widow is the one social situation in which a woman is, an adult woman, is no one's daughter and no one's wife. In most patriarchal societies, she's the only woman who has the right to run her own finances, who is, so in terms of a patriarchal society, she is, um, if she has money, she is potentially a, a loose cannon, a very disruptive force. But there's then the sort of tension, which we get all the way through the Merry Widow, of all the men effectively trying to pull her back into patriarchy to get control of, well, her money and her sexuality. Um, and so a widow is always, in a sense, a challenge to patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And, and of course there is huge resonance in this opera at, around questions of women's rights and economic independence, not least because we've just celebrated a centenary uh, of, of suffrage for women. Um, 
last year and it would be really helpful of course we know that situation here could you give us a sense of what might have been going on around women's rights and suffrage more generally in Vienna when Lehar wrote this opera what what was happening well um at the end of Act One, there is the scene with the, um, the ladies' choice dance. And the German term that's used in, in the original libretto is Damenwahlen. Wahlen is the standard word for elections. So it is literally ladies' voting. And that whole dance is very much set up, the dialogue around it is set up to create a link between the idea of this is the one dance when the woman gets, w women get to pick their partners and also that question of the campaign for um, women's suffrage. In Austria 1905, there certainly was a campaign for votes for women. It wasn't quite as um, much to the forefront of public attention as it was, I think, in Britain at the time, but it was certainly there. And somewhat curiously, in one respect, Austria was um, in advance of Britain because Austria-Hungary Austria introduced universal manhood suffrage in 1907. So all men in Austria got the votes in Austria-Hungary in 1907. They didn't get it in Britain until 1918. Um, but then women in Austria didn't get the vote until, um, well, until after the collapse of the empire. So at this time, as it were, the, the discussion about women's suffrage was part of a bigger discussion about, about social equality. But it was certainly there, as it was in almost every Western democracy at the time. So, of course, it's fascinating that, that Hannah is not a member of the elite as much as that she's a woman. The, mm. a, the question of class is playing out just as much around suffrage at the time as gender, which is fascinating. And I wonder if you could plunge us even more deeply into a sense of, of Lehar's world at the time by maybe talking to us a bit about the fact that he was a bandmaster, which I find fascinating, and if his father was a bandmaster. Mm. So, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that meant, what it might have meant for the kinds of music he would have heard, his understanding of music. Uh, explain what, what a bandmaster was. Basically, every regiment in the um, Habsburg army had a band. Um, from the mid-19th century onwards, the bigger ones of them weren't just um, brass, woodwind, percussion. They had string players as well. So they were effectively orchestras. So it, they could play anything from string quartets through to symphonies. What the bands did um, was well, to provide music at ceremonial occasions, to provide um, entertainment in the officer's mess of an evening, and also they were the sort of center of the interaction between the garrison and the local population. So the um, garrison band would do a regular program of concerts throughout the year. They would provide music for, for dances, for parties, for sort of civic events. They were very much the sort of the army's local PR campaign. The bandmaster would be expected to, to train his musicians, to do instrumentation, and also to compose um, occasional pieces. So perhaps uh, a, a march for the emperor's birthday, or um, a waltz for a charitable event, whatever was, was required of him. Uh, the best of them 
really were very, very good, yeah. and they, they actually then circulated their work, published their work. Um, what that meant for, for, for Le Havre, well, I should also say, um, particularly in the later 19th century, a lot of the bandmasters were actually civilians under contract to the army, but both Leha and his father were serving soldiers. His father took part in the North Italian campaign in 1859 and in the Austro-Prussian War in 1866. What the bandmaster, what, Le what the advantages would be, of course, that you had musicians at your beck and call, so that if you did compose, you could get you could you got people to try out your work straight away, and if you were as talented as someone like Franz Lehár was, these jobs were available very very early. Um, Lehár's father was a bandmaster at the age of 25. His Lehár himself got got a bandmaster's job at the age of 20. Mm. So it was a, it was possible to to progress very quickly if you were talented. The downsides of it were that it was a very peripatetic existence. The regiments got moved around every three or four years. It wasn't brilliantly paid. Um, Lehar Senior had real problems giving his son the, the uh, musical education that he wanted to give him because he couldn't afford it. And also, they had very little free time. I read one or two interviews with Franz Lehar that he gave later in life and he, when he was asked, well, when do you write? How do you write? He admitted, I always write overnight. When I was in the army, it was only in the middle of the night I ever had time to actually compose. And I'm afraid I've never got out of the habit, which I think says something about why, what the, the bandmaster's life was like. And I think that was part of the reason why he decided, after, after decided then to leave the army when he did, a um, year or two before The Merry Widow even though write, writing, operetta, working for the theatre was a lot less, a lot more insecure as a lifestyle. So I mentioned, of course, that through the 19th century we see a combined appetite for the display of the folk on stage mm. and also an appetite for uh, sounds and dance that resembles machines. And of course this operetta gives us both. So mm. we get a folk display in the second act and we then get the can-can in the third. This is all ahead of you. You have something to look forward to now. Um, I wonder, could you just talk to us finally about what those two scenes would have meant for a Viennese audience? So what were they used to seeing on the stage? What were, how might they respond to a display of folk dance, which of course is from an invented country, so it's an invented tradition. And how might they have responded to a staging of Paris in Vienna? I think the, the, the folk dance wouldn't have been, in any sense, unusual. The Habsburg Empire was a massive, multicultural, multinational state, and um, hence there was, it, Vienna in particular was always a cultural melting pot. Um, Pontevedro is based um, very um, on a barely disguised Montenegro. Montenegro bordered Austria. Um, it was still an independent kingdom until, 90, until the First World War um, and was regarded as something of a slightly exotic Slav enclave. Uh, but the Slav world was one that was relatively, relatively familiar given the substantial Slav population within the empire. And the dance that is the core of the second act, the, the, the kolo, 
this sort of step dance that's done either in lines or, or in rings is something that exists in, in, in various forms everywhere between Croatia and Greece. It, it exists throughout south, south, sort of southeastern Europe. So that wouldn't have been that unusual. And of course, Vienna itself, um, you mentioned that um, the big cities of Europe at that time were becoming huge, absorbing people from the surrounding rural areas. Vienna did that very strongly, mainly from the eastern areas of the monarchy. So there would have been a lot of the audience for whom this was actually relatively familiar. Um, operetta, because it didn't make huge linguistic demands, was very popular with people who, for whom German was perhaps not their first language. The Parisian side of things, well, um, anyone in Austria at the time who was middle class, considered themselves cultured, educated, could probably speak French, read fr French, had been to France. Many Austrians were very Francophile. So they would very much liked the Parisian idea. Also, since the mid-19th century, they'd very much liked Jacques Offenbach. And of course, and of course Orpheus in the Underworld is the, te the musical text that first made the Cancan well known. So in some senses, Lehar is taking something that he knew the Austrians liked and inserting it into his, his, his text. That... Um, sort of pairing of town and country, if you like, of cosmopolitan city and then rural, pre-modern um, sort of um, community is one that becomes very powerful in the early, um, well, in the early 20th century. Um, and unfortunately, it was used, off, it often becomes very, very political because you then get people on the conservative political right very much favoring um, the traditional countryside and its values as opposed to those of the um, very cosmopolitan international cities. Or the metropolitan elite, as they are now mm. known. Marvellous. Thank you so much, Judith. Um, that was enormously illuminating, I think, for an understanding of what we're about to see. Um, could I invite our final guest to uh, the discussion, who is Charles Johnston. Charles, come and join us. Um, Charles is covering... <laughs> Charles is covering Baron Zita, who, of course, is the Pontevedran. We were wondering if it was Pontevedran or Vedrian. We think Vedran. Yes. Uh, ambassador to Paris. Um, and, Charles, it's such a lovely opportunity for us to talk to you about the music of this operetta. Um, I wonder, could you speak from personal experience about what the pleasures and challenges of this music are for, for a singer and perhaps for a baritone? Well, I'd... Uh Strangely enough, Baron Zita has very little to sing in this piece, but uh, more years ago than I care to mention, I, um, Count Danilo, who is the love interest, the male love interest in this piece, was my first leading role. And so I have a very soft spot for this piece. I absolutely love it. Now, the, the, it's an interesting question, as, and as, as, uh, as Max uh, uh, mentioned earlier, singers have an obsession with uh, their very much to do with the physical process of, of producing the sound that we do, which involves inevitably breath. And the thing about Lear's music, particularly the love music, not so much the terrible earworms that you will be returning <laughs> home with at <this, laughs> the, uh, the, the end of this evening, is its extraordinary breath. The, the, the sense that the melody 
breathes in, uh, has a moment of tension at the top, and then breathes out in a very relaxed, a very sensual. I think that's the, the, the critical word that I'd use about this music when you're singing Lippenschweigen, or one of, the, one of the great hits from this piece is it's so sexy. Mm. And that's why it's absolutely, it, it rung my bell all those 30 years ago. And sorry, I mentioned that. <laughs> I mentioned that. And, and it still does now. It's, it's uh, irresistible, irresistible, partly as a singer because of your physical response to it. But I think the whole audience breathes with Hannah. They breathe with Danilo. And it's a very delightful, sensual experience. Could you talk us through perhaps some of the, the, the way, the journey the music takes us on? Because it seems to me that Lehar, thinking back actually to his work as a bandmaster, he obviously knows how to work with an audience or to work an audience. Yes, indeed. Um, can you take us through perhaps an example of, of that sort of emotional journey? How does the music do that for us? I think it's, it's, it's to do with the, with the quality of the structure of the plot. It, he, he seems to know... And I think this is probably, uh, Max knows um, more about this than, than I, but he, he seems to know when to, when to up the tempo and when to slow it down. And, and he, he finishes his acts with, a, with, a, with an, up, you know, an upbeat thing. And then, bizarrely, at the very end, the final number in the score is, is, is them parting. It's, it's, it's them saying, I'm going to miss you, and uh, we, we're going to have to finish now, which is sort of slightly odd in many ways. So, of course, there's a reprise of one of the earlier numbers. But he's, he always, I think, picks, and you can tinker around with various numbers in the plot, but he always picks the right tune, the right mood, for the right moment. And that is one of the reasons <coughs> it's, it's, it's been so perennial, this, mm. this thing. And, you know, I, speaking personally, I prefer it to Flayed Mouse any day of the week. <laughs> any day of the week. A lot of people disagree with me. <laughs> You're causing controversy oh, here. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Max mentioned, of course, the very particular challenges of, of the work of singers. And I'm sure all of us in this room are fascinated to know what your day is like before a show. Um, so take us through the mysteries of, of backstage life. When, when, do you, when do you begin work for a show that, say, begins at 7.30? When do you arrive? How do you get ready? Are you getting ready even before you arrive? Tell us about your day. This Baron Zeta is a particular sort of role. Uh, he's not really one of the great lyrics. He's basically the comedy sandwich. <laughs> uh, he gets a lot of dialogue and a lot of strange and not necessarily terribly interesting and sensible entries that he has to deal with. Because, you know, personally, I think uh, uh, Zeta and possibly our delightful assistant uh, director, Glenn, will be the only people who are interested in the plot. <laughs> <laughs> Zeta is plot. Uh, so actually, if, as far as rehearsing for Zeta is concerned, you're, re you're really worried about where your next entry is, whether you're on the right side of the stage. <laughs> and the thing about this particular translation, and I think probably the original, is that Zeta says a lot of the same things the s uh, again and again in slightly different words. So, so uh, the opportunities for suddenly cutting 20 minutes out of the plot are... are <laughs> <laughs> and you really do have to keep your... But I mean, Sarah, Sarah, is real. Sarah and... Uh, and Nathan are probably the people you're interested in. Uh, you have to be quiet on the day. You have to be mentally quiet. 
Uh, it takes huge energy, as Max uh, 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 mentioned. It takes huge, huge energy to do this. Uh, and, and there's no denying that. So you, you do have to be quiet. You, I mean, you know, if Sarah or Nathan had done one of these uh, now before they go, I'd, I'd just, it just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. You, you, ha you do need to concentrate. There's, there's so many things in play, apart from your fellow performers. There's the conductor and, you know, the, the, the staging. And the, the, luckily, the rehearsal period is organic and pleasant. So we, 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 you learn those things. But you do have to concentrate. You do have to keep yourself well hydrated. You have to see, keep yourself well energized, properly fed, but not overfed. Uh, you have to be quiet and relaxed. Mm. And actually, the great thing about the great pieces is that they take you away the moment you sit on the stand on the stage it's much much harder to do a bad piece than it is, is to do a, a good piece something like this once you're up there once you're performing it does it for you the moment you start messing around you're wasting your energy it's a bad piece that you really have to work hard at i'm sure max would be uh, you know agree with me there but uh, no quiet concentration Sandwich at lunchtime, drink afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thinking of the drinks, I'll ask you one final question, then we might open to questions very quickly from the audience. Um, so we mentioned, of course, that this is an operetta which requires performers to act and yeah. in dialogue as well as sing. And as you say, Zeta actually carries responsibility for the plot lines. So as a, as a singer primarily, what is it like to switch to dialogue? What's that experience? I, th I think the modern tendency, and I'm, I applaud it 100%, is that, that you, the audience, come to opera and you see actors who sing and singers who act. There is no, I think certainly in this house, probably speaking out of turn here, I sometimes do, is, the, is certainly in this house, the idea of what we call the park and bark is just simply not acceptable <laughs> anymore. And I applaud that 100%. I, th I think I, it irritates me intensely. Beautiful singers standing at the front, not acting, not in the scene, not in the, in the staging, if there is any staging, because once the legends say that the, the, these people are they don't, unresponsive to direction, but it, most people, certainly, when I go and work with West End uh, singers and performers, I am jaw-droppingly amazed by the number of talents they have at their disposal. We have been, up to recently, one-trick one ponies. It can't, it can't go on for the survival of our art. We need to be actors. We need to be singers. We need to be singers. We need to be actors. <coughs> and the two should never be necessarily uh, split. Sarah. What a fantastic singer. What a sensational actress. And she dances! <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Thank you so much, Charles. I think we probably have time for one or two final questions, if anyone is absolutely overwhelmed with curiosity. <laughs> Does anyone want to have an ask us anything? Done, this is the moment where everyone sits around <laughs> feeling mildly embarrassed. Um, well, I think if that's the case, then let me invite you uh, to clear. I've been asked to ask you to clear the bar reasonably quickly so it can be turned back into a bar. 
Um, I would also invite you to now thoroughly enjoy this uh, performance, which is astonishing. I've already seen it. And to invite you not to be quite so authentic as to cause riots, preferably, <laughs> over hats. And can I finally ask you to join me in thanking these three astonishing guests. Thank you so much. <laughs>